You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Arty Farty Podcast. Read and daydream. In this season, Creative Conversations, we talk to your favourite artists and authors to find out what inspires them. Creativity is the thing that changes the world. This talk was recorded to inspire you. If you keep doing enough bad things, you actually get a really good thing. Just don't be afraid of failing. Up next, Mick Elliott. Mick Elliott is an author, illustrator, kids' TV producer, scriptwriter, animator and mischief maker. For many years, he has worked for Foxtel and Nickelodeon, producing programs like Slimefest and Camp Orange. He has written two book series, The Turners and Squidge Dibley, and his animated short films have also screened at over 60 festivals worldwide. We're going to have a chat with Mick about his career, storytelling process, and why he likes to tell such gross stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Mick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so looking forward to hearing what you've got to say today about the creative process and um, how you come up with characters and stories. But my first question is, you've had so many interesting jobs. Can you tell us a little bit about your career and how you ended up writing books for kids? I would love to. Um, You know, when I was at school, I didn't really know what sort of job I might end up doing, but I knew that it had to be something to do with telling stories in some way because I did always love to tell stories when I was a kid. But back then, this was back in the 1700s, I really had no idea um, what a career, what a job, doing something creative and doing something in storytelling might look like. Um, There was no YouTube back then. There was really no internet available, so it wasn't so easy to look up what sort of jobs might be out there for somebody like me. Um, so I really, after I went to, after I finished school, you know, at school I did, um, you know, I loved English at school. I loved doing art and different types of visual art. I went to uni and studied media and communications. Um, and then I found myself at the end of a university degree going, well, what do I do now? And I really just muddled my way through it. And what I found was that, it was the things that I did in my spare time. I used to make little short films and write stories. And so it was those things that actually ended up being the things, um, you know, those hobbies, those spare time hobbies, ended up being the things that actually ended up progressing my career in some ways it was more than the formal study that I'd had. Um, but I had a whole range of different jobs um, because there's really no straight career path for anyone that gets into a creative uh, career like I've been lucky enough to do. I mean, all those things that you're mentioning, obviously filmmaking, I mean, the the common theme books, films is storytelling. What do you think, What what is your, how did you discover your love for storytelling? Well, I think in part it was because uh, when I was a kid, I was the youngest of three boys. So there was a little bit of a, an age gap between me and my two older brothers. They were only um, just over a year and a half apart. And then there was about a three or four year gap until me. So I had quite a lot of time where I was you know, that bit younger than them and a lot of time to be in my own headspace while they were off, you know, doing high school or off at parties and those sort of things that older siblings do. Um, so I had a lot of time on my own. Um, and, you know, also being the third child, I think, you know, by that point, my parents were like, yeah, you just do whatever you want to do. (laughs) And so many, many hours were spent on the floor, um, you know, the lounge room in front of the TV or back then in front of the big old stereo, um, playing with Lego, drawing pictures and and being in in your own um, headspace as a a kid for that long is a really great thing. It's a great way to, to really nurture 
the imagination. And I think that in part definitely formed um, the way I moved forward into my career as, as an adult. Mm. I mean, why did you choose to tell stories for, for kids? What's the most enjoyable thing about making um, work for young people? It's, it's a funny thing that I hear very, very often when I um, speak to other children's authors that most of us feel like we never, in spite of our bodies getting older, that we ne- never actually quite grew up. And certainly um, in the many years that I worked as a producer at Nickelodeon, um, we used to have a what we called a creative philosophy uh, there, which was uh, to see the world from a kid's point of view. And I think that that's a very, very important thing because literally every human being on the planet has been a kid at some point. And it always amazes me when I meet adults who seem to have somehow disconnected from that whole big experience of being a kid. But it's something that I never lost. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very, very important as a storyteller um, to immediately be able to put your put yourself into the mind of a of a kid and, and a kid's point of view. Well, what would an eight year old or a ten year old or a, or a thirteen or fourteen year old, uh, in the case of my Turner's books, what would they do in this situation? And in one hundred percent of cases, that's going to be very very different from what someone in their twenties or thirties or forties is going to do. So it's really about intrinsically knowing and having a sense of what a kid's perspective is going to be because you know the the, the world is is very confusing and, and often very overwhelming as a kid. Um, and you know that there's a sort of secret world of adults where there's all this other information that you're not quite exposed to. Um, and, and that as a storyteller is a very, very powerful uh, palette to work with, to have the sense that there's this whole other adult world out there that as a kid you're trying to decode. And that can be everything from why do adults behave a certain way or why do I feel so powerless in this situation because I'm a kid and I have to do what an adult tells me to do when, when I think what I should be able to do is something different to what I'm being told. Mm. Um, so, yeah, intrinsically I'd say it's about being able to see the world from the kid's point of view. When you were young, did you read a lot yourself or did you mostly make up your own stories? A, a bit of a mixture of both. I mean, we, we always had uh, books in the house, but I'd say you know, the, the TV was always on as well and probably if I could jump in a time machine and go back, I'd probably watch a, a little bit less uh, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and spend a little bit more time um, pouring through all the books that we had. But, um, but that, that in itself has probably formed um, you know, my, my approach as a writer in that um, I do try to write quite visually. Um, and I, you know, obviously I've worked in TV and in visual mediums for, for many years. Um, but, but I always did love to read as a kid and we were very, very lucky um, you know, to have lots of books, usually you know, handed down from my brothers, that we had everything from you know, the Dr. Seuss books, you know, the Roald Dahl books. Um, you know, I loved as a very young child looking at the wonderful Richard Scarry books, the Busy Busy World books, which had wonderful um, pictures of, of uh, you know, everyday scenes of animals and rabbits, you know, in towns and things. Um, but then I, I'm also, you know, um, ancient enough to remember when the Choose Your Own Adventure books came along. They, they were just a phenomenon. Oh. Um, and even things like Mr. Men, I remember when those first came out and that format was, was, was so compelling and those characters were so clearly defined and so compelling. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of the Choose Your Own Adventure books. I think mm. they were really great. Really? I used, used to read them from the end backwards. Oh, well, that's cheating, but that's okay. <laughs> that's part of the joy of reading. You can do it however you want to. If you want to skip forward, that's fine. Um, what What are your influences now? I think, um, I mean, I still love to read. Um, and, and I think in Australia, particularly, we're so lucky to have such a uh, 
just a strong, sort of vibrant children's um, literature community. I mean, uh, people like Jessica Townsend, you know, Oliver Plummer, Van, Rachel Spratt, Tim Harris. Um, you know, there's such a great collection of authors out there, and um, you know, I love reading the work of other Australian authors. I'm constantly reading uh, others, other authors' work, um, in, in part just to uh, you know to see if I've you know it's in any way justified me you know kind of um, brushing shoulders with them at festivals and things. But um, yeah, so I'm really really inspired by the, by the work of, of other Australian authors. And, you know, I loved um, you know um, Favel Parrot's recent book, There Was Still Love, um, which is a bit more of a YA book, but so beautifully written. I loved you know uh, Karen Foxley's uh, recent book, Lenny's Book of Everything. It's wonderful. So I'm, I'm constantly inspired by the work that uh, that other Australian authors are doing. Mm. And in that also, is there non-fiction? I mean, you have a lot of references in the Turners to different animals. Are you doing research in that way? Definitely, definitely. And that's one of the things that when I do creative writing courses at schools and with kids, um, one of the lessons that I teach the kids is that those you know, factual details from everyday life make your story more believable. So when I was writing The Turners, which um, for anyone that's not familiar with the series, is about a 13-year-old boy who wakes up one day to discover without warning that he can transform into animals. Um, basically, I had on my desk a great big encyclopedia of animals and as each chapter, new chapter came around and I thought, okay, what, what animal is, is Leo, our main character, going to turn into? I'll flick through that book and think, okay, well, what what would be a really interesting and amazing animal to unleash into this everyday situation? Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't want it just to be cats and dogs. I really wanted the reader to actually discover a, a whole lot of interesting information about all, all the different sorts of animals that are out there. And for me, as, as a writer, it was also very liberating because actually, I, mean, I didn't have to make up this stuff because there are so many amazing, just unbelievable creatures out there. Um, and real-life animals out there to, uh, to have that resource there and just be able to, be, uh, to, be able to look at these, um, the, this information about these different animals and, and use it as a springboard for what this character might turn into. It was very liberating. Mm. How do you start a new story? Can we talk a little bit about your creative process now? Where do you get your inspiration from to start a whole new series or, or, or a book within that series? Because it's a great question and every writer is a little bit different and, and I have to say my process has changed quite a little bit since I wrote the first of the Turner's books, which you know I started writing, um, oh gosh, in about um, 20, maybe 2014, I think I said, no, it was earlier than that, it was probably about 2012 I started writing it, it took many years until um, it was ready to be published. Um, but back then I didn't really plan out a lot more than just a really basic concept and with that series, all I really had was the opening chapter, just the idea of this 13-year-old kid, his birthday is in the school library and he transforms into a Komodo dragon with no warning. Um, that was all I had. I, just, I liked that idea. I liked that concept of what might happen in that situation, but I didn't really know where it was going to go from there. And unfortunately, that's a, that's a very uneconomic way to write. Um, and to get the final 50,000 words that that first book was, I probably ended up writing about 250,000 um, because I hadn't planned it out and I kept on changing my mind. Um, but as, as I've um, gained more experience as a writer, I find that it actually does. Um, it is a good idea to plan out your plot and to at least loosely sketch where you hope the story will go. It doesn't matter if you change it slightly, but at least then you have a roadmap and you're not wasting time writing a whole other books that you end up just uh, editing out as you uh, as you go through the rewrite process. 
And obviously you illustrate as well. Do you do that mapping out process visually or with words? It was really interesting with the Squidge Dibley series because I hadn't, even though I've, I've loved to draw all my life and I've always doodled in the margins of, of anything that I'm, I'm working on, um, I hadn't actually um, illustrated a series before and I felt very, very lucky that my publisher, Hachette, um, were willing to give me an opportunity to do so with the Squidge Dibley series. Um, but, but actually, I started with the words first and I did a lot of research into what... Um, you know, what this sort of format was like. I looked at series like Diary of a Winter Kid, I looked at the Treehouse books and Bad Guys, um, the Weirdo series, and I, I just tried to get a sense of what, what is the balance of words to pictures. Um, and I really wanted to ensure that there was at least one to two pictures per page, um, but, but also that there was still a good meaty amount of text there. I didn't want, you know, the books to feel light or to feel that they were, um, you know, just a whole lot of doodles with a smattering of text. I really wanted to make sure there was a good balance there. Um, but I started with the text and I would, I would basically just leave um, an indication of where each drawing would be. Um, but that, that in itself, especially on the first book, was an interesting process because I really wanted the, the words and pictures to work in tandem with each other and not to have the illustration simply show what I've just described. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, growing up your love of cartoons because Squidge Dibley definitely has sections where it's almost like a comic um, and where the pictures tell parts of the story themselves rather than the words um, and doing those illustrations as well. Um can you just explain that process of how you use sort of different styles and mediums throughout the, the books to tell different parts of the story? Certainly, and I, I love graphic novels and um, you know, I, I love visual storytelling, um, but I've just come off the back of a, of a big series, The Turners, that was all text, that was all prose with, with just the cover illustrations and no internal illustrations. Um, and, and I thought if I can... If I can get the pictures that are in my head onto the page and I can find that balance between what I'm describing with words and what I can, um, you know, execute in a drawing, um, hopefully the reader will, will have a really great time with this. But um, it, it was quite challenging to get it right because either, you know, what, you know, I'm like I said earlier, I'm not a trained illustrator, I'm not a professional illustrator, um, but I can doodle pretty well. Um, but it wasn't always easy to get that image that was in my head onto the page. Um, so, but I, I really did try to make sure that the pictures were paying off what had been set up in in the text, in the words. Um, and what it meant, though, was that then, therefore I didn't have to describe necessarily too much what a character looked like. I could just establish who they were, could say who they were, and then I could put in a picture of them so that the reader can see them. And then, then the reader is seeing in their minds exactly how I was seeing the character in my mind. Um, but it also helped a lot with with things like just some of the storytelling process. So each of the Squidge Dibley books um, has a short comic book section, um, which sort of explains the climax of the story, um, which meant I could just go all out visual storytelling only. Um, and that, that again, was, was really, really exciting and really you know, um, just a yeah, really, really exciting process because my, my son and I, we love to read books like the Captain Underpants books, <laughs> which are mainly sort of drawings. Um, and so to be able to use a little bit of those techniques that someone like Dave Pilkey uses was, was actually um, really wonderful. Can you explain a little bit about the process of bringing that character to life? Because obviously we see Squidge from all different angles. Do you do that in a computer program or are you write drawing on a page? That's a really great question. And when I started... Um, Squidge Dibley, I, I did them all freehand and I do completely draw freehand. 
Um, but I had originally planned to draw them all with pen and paper. Um, and so what I presented to my publisher when I was pitching them the idea of Squidge Ghibli, um, apart from the written manuscript, I, I basically drew um, all of the main characters, just this is line art, um, just with essentially like a type of texture um, on paper. And that, that had been my intention to draw it all that way um, because I'm, I'm, I'm quite good at drawing characters front on, um, where, where you tell the difference between a, a trained illustrator and a novice like me is when you start to get into angles, um, when you start to see characters from diagonal angles or from above or diagonally from above, that gets very, very tricky. Um, so I really tried to set up my drawing so that generally you're seeing the characters from front on or from behind because I can manage that. But but actually I was very, very lucky because right before I was due to start drawing the, Squidge, the first Squidge Ghibli book, I, I bumped into um, a wonderful illustrator named Sarah Davis, um, and she mentioned there's an, an app, an iPad app called Procreate, um, which allows you to draw straight onto the screen with an Apple pen. Um, and so I ended up getting that. And because I, I, I don't like using a mouse or drawing on a um, what's called a Wacom tablet, which is where you draw on the tablet, but then you, you have to lift your head up and look on the screen. I really wanted to be able to draw on the actual surface that I was drawing on. Um, and so without sounding like I'm just a big ad for Procreate, um, it is a wonderful program because uh, it costs $15 and um, and literally you can just start drawing on your screen straight away and you have fully finished digital art. The other wonderful thing about it, of course, is that if you make a mistake or you literally just tap your fingers against the screen and it erases the last line that you drew. Um, so I, I probably conservatively estimate that it would have taken me about four times longer to draw mm. uh, the squidge books had I not been doing it with a digital workflow. And when um, really any kid out there wants to draw and has access to an iPad, um, you know, you can use this program. Presumably you have an Apple pen because you do really need one. Mm. Um, but you can basically start drawing completely digitally um, and it allows you to shade and use different pen types and airbrushes and that sort of thing. And it, it, it's quite... It's lovely for me to actually look, as, as I look through the, the, um, all the Squeeze Dibley books, I can actually see how my drawing um, competency is actually getting better as, yeah. as the books go on. Yeah, that's great. So it's great to always be learning new things and picking up new skills and challenging yourself. And and it might, there must be a little bit of fear in that as well of going, oh, I used to doodle in the side of my drawing, but now yes. I'm putting myself out there to say I'm an illustrator as well. Um, so it takes a, it takes a lot of bravery to do something like that as well. Yeah, well, yes, but I think that's true of any creative task, whether it's writing or drawing or painting or singing or playing an instrument or whatever it might be. I mean, you, you have to put yourself out there, but, but with that comes a lot of fear, fear of judgment, a fear of rejection, a fear of failure. So, you know, I, I um, have so much admiration for anybody who pursues any any creative interest whatsoever because very, very easy for people to criticise and to knock you down, but to actually be the one out there. I'm not, I'm not just talking about myself, but anybody um, that does anything creative, to get out there, be it on stage or on the page or wherever it might be, and go, well, this is something I've created for myself. Now I'm going to put it out there in front of you, you know, warts and all. Um, you know, I think that that's a, it's a very, very brave thing to do and it's a wonderful thing to do. How do you deal with criticism? Um, well, it, it's funny because I I used to be a little bit sensitive about it, but when um, from working in TV for, for many many years, I mean, TV is a very very fast turnaround um, industry. Um, and one of my early jobs at Nickelodeon was making promos. They're the, the little thirty second ads that tell you about a show and what time it's on. And we would have to make them very very quickly. And I mean, I was lucky to have a very very supportive. 
um, manager and, and, and creative director there. Um, but if something if something you had made wasn't right, you just had to remake it. You didn't actually have time to, to feel bad or to you know, be down on yourself. You just had to move forward. And so I think that, um, that sort of has helped me then over the years as I've progressed into um, you know, um, making longer TV shows and also into writing. Um, but you can't be too precious about it and you can't, you can't think that what you you creating is perfect because it's not. And usually the people that are giving you feedback, um, if it's your editor um, or your publisher, well, their job is to make what you're making as great as it can be. So I've always been very, very open to feedback. And um, you know, it's funny, on, on one of the, the Turner's books, the second, maybe the third Turner's book, actually, I had um, some advice from, from my publisher and my editor to basically completely um, change one of the characters, to substitute in a different character, um, and that meant essentially rewriting half the book. But I knew intrinsically, even though it was going to be a lot of work, I knew it was actually the right advice. Mm. How long does it take you to to finish a book? I mean, you said you started um, the Turners, I think, in, in 2014, and it I think it got published in 2016. So is that sort of – is it uh, the first book, was that the hardest <laughs> to start and finish or – What's the normal time for finishing a book? It, it really varies. And the Turners, actually, I, I think I've given you the wrong date because the Turners, from when I started it to when it actually came out in bookshops, was four years. Wow. Um, but that, that, that was not four years of doing absolutely nothing else. Along, along the way, there was um, a lot of drafts of it, a lot of getting feedback, mm-hmm. a lot of putting it in the drawer and thinking, well, this is a waste of time. Why should I even bother with this? It's no good. And then picking it up again a month later and going, maybe I'll give it another try. Um, but what, what, once I actually started to get published, um, you know, after that first turn, it took four years. The subsequent books took about a year to a year and a half, and that's at 50,000 words each. Um, but I was also working full-time um, as a TV producer, so I wasn't doing that full-time. Mm. Um, and the Squidge Dibley books where you know, I did actually take a break from TV producing for a while, and each, the, the first one took about a year, and the subsequent books each took about... Uh, six months each, and that was just doing nothing but writing and and drawing the pictures. Mm. So I think the really good thing, you know, for for kids to hear about that is that if you've got a passion, even though to begin with it might be something that you um, you can't do all the time, one hundred percent, that you keep things ticking over and you come back to it, and you don't ever lose sight of that passion that you have for those creative endeavours. That's that's so very, very important. And the the analogy that I give when when kids do ask me um, those sorts of questions about how long it takes is is that you need to treat a creative um, hobby or a creative passion the same way that someone would treat um, if they wanted to play football professionally. Well, you don't go to your first training session and go, well, now I'm a a world-class footballer. Um, you have to keep going to training and you have to keep playing every Saturday and you have to keep on doing it and doing it until you get to a point where, you know, where you're actually pretty good at it. And it's, it's the same with writing or with drawing or with playing an instrument or whatever your creative interest might be. You, you've just got to keep at it. And a big part of writing um, and illustrating is just turning up and just doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you won't feel like you're very good at it and sometimes you have bad days, but you've just got to keep on doing it. Yeah. I mean, your books have been described as being too gross for grown-ups. What's your reason for keeping an element of yuck in your in your books? It's, you know, I, I write for um, particularly for kids who don't necessarily necessarily like to read. Um, you know, there are, there are so many wonderful books out there. There's 
so many wonderful books out there for kids who love reading, um, and that's a great thing. Um, but we've got a lot of kids out there, and especially today um, with with screen time and, and um, the focus on screens, consuming so much of kids' downtime, um, that I, I have a philosophy that we need more books for kids who wouldn't necessarily... Um, pick up a book in the first place, and so by by including the sort of humour that the books um, that my books include, it just gives you that little bit more of a hook, perhaps to get in some of those kids that wouldn't um, wouldn't necessarily be keen readers. Mm. And that's not to say that um, you know. And I do I, I do get the only thing that annoys me a little bit is when um, a, 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 someone might look at one of my books and think, oh, this is just you know art gags, it's not gags. Well, they're they're, they're not. Those things are just an entry point that allows you to actually explore really interesting characters and complex themes. Um, you know, there are books out there that are that are that they are just fart jokes and snot jokes, and that's fine. There's a market for those. But um, you know, what, one of the things that I learned when I was at Nickelodeon, we used to have a, a what we called a creative filter, which was heart, smart, fart. Um, the fart part is, is is the gags, is the fart jokes, but the heart and smart part are as important. Heart meaning, you know, does does the story or the character have heart? Is it realistic? Is it relatable? And is it smart? There actually has to be an intelligence in what you're writing about and the way that you're writing, and it's not dumbed down. Um, and I, I've really, really tried to instill that philosophy in, in the Switch Ghibli series and the Turner series. Mm. I'd like to talk a little bit about characters because both the Turners and the Squidge Dibley books have a really unique and interesting set of characters. Um, do any, are any of your characters based on people you know? Yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> Look out. <laughs> I think every, firstly, uh, oh no, no, no lawsuits, please. Um, <laughs> every, every writer firstly puts some of themselves into a character. Um, there's no question about that. I think um, the the... The main character in, in the Turners is probably quite close to myself, Leo. Um, and it was only after after that series was finished that I sort of looked back and, and looked at the the situation that I'd created um, in that story. So it's about a thirteen year old kid who um, you know discovers one day that he's different from everybody else. That he's got this kind of intrinsic um, thing about his body that's different to everybody else. That he can turn into animals when no one else around him. Can, but he can't control it uh, when it happens. Um, and, you know, when I was his age, I was diagnosed with insulin-dependent diabetes, and so suddenly I felt very sort of out of control of my body and very different to everybody else. But I actually didn't make that connection uh, mm. until after the books were published. So, oh, wait a minute, that's actually very, very similar to what I was going through when I was 13, like him. Um, so I think yeah, there's, there's definitely some of myself, but also, you know, in some of the... Um, some of the teacher characters, particularly in Squidge Dibley and the villain um, of the of the Squidge Dibley series, an awful, awful teacher named Vice Principal Hoodsley. Um, a, a lot of aspects of what he does and what he gets up to are very much based on high school teachers that I had uh, back in the 1980s um, when teaching standards were one, very, very different from they are now, and, and teaching in general was probably a lot less, um, you know, kind of um, scrutinised than it is today yeah. in terms of standards. Um, I mean, there, there were some truly, truly um, outlandishly behaved teachers back then. And um, you know, on one hand, that was that was um, terrible as a student, but also looking back and it's like, wow, what, what an experience to, uh, you know, to be taught by these eccentric and strangely behaved adults. Um, so it's actually lovely. It's lovely now as a as a uh, also to be able to mine back from that some of that inf- uh, some of that experience, I should say, and um, you know put it into characters like Flash Principal Hoosley. 
<laughs> and on the other side of that, did you have a teacher like Mrs. Trigley? Definitely. I mean, I, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Trigley is one of my favourite um, characters in, in all of my books. Um, but I, I had some wonderful teachers, such wonderful teachers. And, you know, uh, as, as my kids are going through school, you really do see um, how important great teachers are. And, um, yeah, even in my visits to schools and meetings, really, really passionate teacher librarians and English teachers. I mean, you, you really see the value of great teachers and teachers who really care uh, about educating and about all of the things that as writers we try to do to entertain and, and you know, educate kids. Um, so, yeah, definitely I had some great English teachers, particularly through high school, some great drama teachers as well, great art teachers. Um, and it, it's funny, as, as you get older, as, as a kid, you often don't really think of your teachers as humans. You don't think of them as being, you know, it's always weird when you're a kid and you see your teacher outside of school at the shopping centre and you go, oh, my goodness, they're actually a human being that does normal things like yeah. everybody else. Um, so, yeah, there definitely were some very, very inspiring and wonderful teachers that I still remember to this day from, from my schooling years. So you have a really large ensemble cast of characters in Squidge Dibley. Do you have any interesting stories about how you came up with any of these characters? Uh, well, it's funny. Again, some of them are based on actual um friends that I had at school, loosely. I mean, that, none of them is, is literally just a carbon copy of, um, of people that I knew at school. But, um, yeah, we, you know, we, when I look back at school, I think of you know, all the different kids that were in my class. Like there, there were some colourful characters, let's just say. Um, and so I was, re- I was determined when I, um, when I was thinking up the cast of, of characters that are in, uh, in the class in, in Squidge Dibley that they all have a really distinct personality trait and they all have something about them that makes them stand out to the reader. And that, that's a really important thing as a writer and as a storyteller is that every character needs to be clearly defined, um, needs to have weaknesses, needs to have things that they want. Um, so, for example, there's one side character in Squidge Dibley, um, Nathan, and Nathan just loves to eat paint. And you know, his, his whole character is basically uh, based around the idea that at any opportunity, he will start eating paint if you let him. Um, and so to be able to put a character like that into this classroom situation is a lot of fun. Um, and, and the same with Squidge, really. I mean, Squidge, um, he's a sort of a superhero without meaning to be, but he's also what, as a writer, we call a chaos bringer, that he accidentally causes chaos around him. And there were certainly um, friends that I went to school with who would cause chaos but didn't always mean to. What's your best character development tip? The, the, the most important thing is that every character has to want something. Um, you know, so, so to use a, you know, a bigger example, uh, say, for example, Harry Potter, well, when people look at the Harry Potter books, they know, they know that you know, Harry, you know, he's an orphan, um, so he wants a family, he wants to fit in, he, he, he wants to you know, defeat this dark wizard who's after him. Um, and so as a reader of those wonderful books, um, uh, you clearly understand what Harry wants. You know, so and it was just, it's the same with with whenever I'm I'm coming up with characters. I think, well, what what does this character want? Because if, if they're happy at the start of the story and they've got everything they need, well, you don't have anything to move the story forward. Um, and so, in the instance of, of the Squidge Fiddly series, well, you know, it's about a class of kids who um, have a terrible teacher, and so they they all wanted to try to overcome this terrible teacher and try to make school feel. It's like a good, happy place again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the most important thing, that your characters have to want something, but they also should never be perfect. There's nothing more boring than a perfect character who can just 
survive any situation, um, you know, without being impacted in any way. Well, that, that's that's an easy way to make a, a boring character. And it's one of the reasons why I think you know Batman is generally so much more popular than Superman because Batman has all these dark sides, and flaws, and uh, about him. Whereas Superman, well, yes, he's a great character, but you know, ultimately he can pretty much survive anything and he's going to be fine. Um, so you're making sure that your character has weaknesses and has flaws and has problems. Your mm. characters have to have problems. This kind of comes brings us to themes as well. I mean, both Leo and Squidge Dibley and, and pretty much most of the class of 6PU have some really massive differences that make their life a little bit hard at times, but it's also that those differences that end up saving the day. Why do you think it's important to tell stories where a person's differences are what makes them strong? That's a lovely question. I'm so glad you've, you've um, asked that, particularly uh, in terms of Squidge Dibley. Um, and going back to that earlier point, but on, on the surface, on the cover, the Squidge Dibley series may appear to be this gross book with you know, fart jokes and so on. But actually, what I was really, really very interested in, in exploring through the books was difference. Um, and although it never says it specifically within the book, um, Squidge Dibley ultimately is a, is a type of special needs kid. He has these medical conditions about his body that he has no control over. Um, and similarly, other kids that feature in the story, other, other kid characters that feature in the story, all, all, all have these differences about them. Um, and even within the, the cast of teachers as well, um, I, I just haven't signposted it. I haven't actually put labels on them. Um, but I was very, very keen that um, that the books actually explored difference and explored the idea of um, of what value being different brings because everybody feels, especially as a kid, like they don't fit in. They feel like that thing about them, whether it's the colour of their hair or the way they talk or their their, you know, their background or their family or whatever it might be, um, you know, or their ability at sports or whatever it might be, they, everyone feels different. They feel like they don't fit in. So um, that, that really was a theme that I was... I was wanting to explore in, in the Squidge Dibley series. And, um, but like I said, I didn't want to telegraph it. I didn't want to you know, shine a big spotlight mm. on it and go, this is a story about being different. This is a story about not fitting in and about the value of being different. That's all there if you're willing just to scratch the surface slightly. But I really wanted to gift wrap those themes in, in, you know, in a really sort of fun, um, you know, uh, scatological, let's say, you know, story for kids. I mean, the other thing that you explore is, is science fiction, and science. Um, what do you think, what is the gift that that brings you as a storyteller and um, kids as the receiver of the story? Well, you know, I, I grew up on Star Wars and Star Trek and I know all those things and loved them. Um, I, I think um, what, what I'm really interested in is stories that are, are grounded in a reality that, that the reader can identify with, but that have a fantastical element to them. Um, and that's true for both the Turners and for Squidge Dibley. So both of them are set in, in very much real-world situations. They're not set on other planets or they don't have aliens and things in them. But both of the series have, have fantastic situations and fantastical concepts, be it a boy who discovers that he can accidentally turn into animals but can't control it, um, or be it in Squidge Dibley, a, a story of a kid in an everyday uh, school um, who just, his body would change shape and he has elastic arms and can bounce around the room. Um, so but I, I think what that gives you is actually just a licence to, um, to kind of up the stakes firstly, but also just create some really, really good fun comic scenarios. And that's what I'm very interested in and it probably 
comes back to my experience writing and working for TV that I really wanted um, there to be these great great scenes and great little moments um, of high comedy and high concept comedy that then if I could join together into an overall narrative or hopefully um, would be really, really you know, compelling and enjoyable for the reader. Mm. Speaking of reading, how would you feel about mm. reading a little bit of Squidge Dibley for us? I, I would be delighted and I, I'd encourage... Uh, if anyone that's listening has got a copy of the book with them, please do read along because obviously I, I, I'll love to read the, the words, but I won't be able to, uh, you know, show you the pictures. So if you do want to read along, it's going to be the first Squidge Dibley book, Squidge Dibley Destroys the School, and we're going to have a little read of Chapter 16. How does that sound? I think that sounds great, and I hope it's got a lot of gross in it. Uh, well, this, this probably is the chapter that does um, earn the two gross for grown-ups warning that's on the front cover. Um, I have read this to adults and, and seen um, adults in the room, well, basically having to leave the room <laughs> right. as I read. So why, why don't we give it a go? Let's go, Mick. Right. All, all that we need to know um, at this point is that we're hearing about um, Vice Principal Hoovesley and we're hearing a little bit about what makes this horrible, horrible teacher such an awful teacher. So uh, here we go. Vice Principal Hoosley is obsessed with swim squad. It used to be voluntary, but he made it compulsory for every student at Cragland South Primary, whether they know how to swim or not. He is desperate to win the annual junior regional water war. It's a yearly swimming carnival between Cragland South Primary and Cragland North Private, which is this posh school where all the kids from the rich families go. They had this amazing Olympic-sized swimming pool with crystal clear water. Their swim team all look like human dolphins. We've never won against them ever. In fact, we had never won against anybody. There's a rumour that Vice Principal Hoovesley thinks that Craglands North Private will give him a job as their swim coach if we ever beat them. Whenever anyone complains about squad training, he yells, everyone swims till Cragland South wins. So every class has to do an hour of swimming training every week, even in winter, even the kindergarten kids. It's not fun swimming either, just laps back and forth with no free time afterwards. And if anyone stops swimming, he makes the whole class do an extra lap. The worst thing is that we have to train in the pool at the senior citizen's home across the road and up the hill from the school. The water is warm and yellow, and there's always something disgusting floating in it, like tufts of hair and band-aids with bits of scab stuck to them. Once, there was an oversized nappy with brown ooze leaking out of it. Another time, there was a big dark lump on the bottom of the pool. Shane Sluisman swam down to check it out, and it turned out to be a dead rat. Worst of all was the time we were practicing laps at Butterfly, and something soft and green bumped into Lenny Batisto's goggles. He flicked it away, but Rennie Gross was surging up out of the water behind him with his mouth open, and the green thing went right into his mouth. And it was a toe an actual, real-life, rotten, human toe. It had fallen off an old guy who'd been doing aquaerobics. 
straight away, Rennie started throwing up right there in the water, and everyone who was swimming in the lane behind him started swallowing all his vomit. And then they all started throwing up as well. The whole lane turned into a churning bath fountain. And meanwhile, the toe kept on bobbing around and bumping against people's faces. Everyone was screaming and vomiting and trying not to let the toe touch them or swallow other people's vomit. It was horrible. Then Vice Principal Hoovesley started yelling at everyone to keep swimming. And when we tried to explain that there was a rotten toe and a whole heap of upchuck in the water, he shouted, Stop being so childish. So we had to keep swimming. This was nothing compared to the disgustingness that lay ahead. I guess if you want to find out what it is, you'll have to read on. Oh. <laughs> oh, Mick. Sorry about that. I know. I'm sorry. Are you still with us? Yeah, only just. That's pretty gross. <laughs> What's the most surprising thing you've learnt while writing your books? Um, you know what? I think it's it's funny as a as a kid author, you do a lot of um, you do a lot of school talks. You visit schools a lot, and I can still remember the very very first one that I ever did. Um, it was out at St Ives, and I just had had the first Turner's book published, and I didn't really know what to expect because you know you hear as an adult that um, you know kids. Uh, they're only interested in, in watching stuff on screen. It's all about YouTube. It's all about Minecraft. So there's a lot of trepidation going into that first session that I did. And um, I walked into the school. It was about 100 Year 3 students. Um, with you know, I had my book in my hand. And I thought, I'll, I'll read the opening chapter of the Turners. And I really I didn't know whether they were going to be interested or whether they were just going to start you know, throwing you know, bits of chewing gum and, and the paper at me. And, and it was so wonderful that... After about 30 seconds of reading the, the chapter, that it was pin drop quiet in the room. And I looked up and I saw every single face in the room all just looking at me, hanging on every word. And when I got to the end of the chapter, and this invariably happens, um, they all groaned because they wanted to hear more. And, and what, I, what I've learned from that is that kids love to be told stories. They love to be read to. And it's a very, very powerful thing for an adult to sit with a book and read it to kids um, and for kids to, to have that license to picture a story in their own minds and to not have, um, you know, a, a YouTube clip or whatever it might be showing them what, what they should be seeing, um, but to actually be able to, to be able to form the pictures in their own minds. It's a very, very powerful thing. Mm. But, you know, I've ultimately, I've learned that, you know, the, the power of the written word remains, even in this digital visual age, it still remains a, a very, very strong and powerful thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you have any tips um, to deal with writer's block? Yes, every writer experiences writer's block sometimes. What I would say is that the first thing to do is actually just to step away from the page because writing isn't just actually sitting at your laptop or sitting with your your, um, paper in front of you and your pen. Um, Writing actually keeps on going on in your head even when you walk away and it's actually often very good to do something physical. It might be just to go for a walk or kick a ball around in the backyard, or go and get something to drink. Um, and I often find that when I've written myself into a corner and I can't think of where the story needs to go, as soon as I go off and start doing something else, my brain is still working out the solution. And I often find that I'll, I'll you know, an hour later I'll be in the shower and suddenly I'll, I'll think of an idea and think of a solution. Um, so step away from the page is the first thing and know that your brain will keep on working on it. Um, the other thing you can do is just jump ahead in the story. Um, 
if you if you just go, okay, I'm going to work this out later, I'll jump ahead, I know that my character is going to get out of the situation, I'll jump ahead to the next chapter and just start writing that as if everything is, is being worked out. Um, and then you often find that by doing that, you can then come back to the little gap in the story and um, and fill it in much more easily than if you just keep on trying to work out what the um, what the solution is at that moment. Mm, you've given some great advice. What's the best advice that you've ever received? I think when it comes to writing or illustrating or really any creative pursuit, is you just have to keep at it and you do it because you love it. Um, but you need to be kind to yourself and not be too self-critical because everyone, everyone that's ever done anything creative, and I, I don't mean to sound too earnest when I say this, but anyone that does anything creative has those voices in their head saying to them, this is no good, nobody will like this, why are you doing this? Everybody has that. So you've just got to put those those thoughts aside and just keep on doing it and remind yourself why you do it. Um, and, and you do it because you love it. You do it because you don't feel like you could do anything else. And you do it because you want to create something. And in the end, it doesn't matter whether you're the best at what you're doing. You're just doing it as best as you can. And I, I've certainly never set out to be the best writer or illustrator, the best-selling writer or illustrator. I've just set out to be the best that I can be and hopefully to create some stories that, that resonate with readers and that, um, that kids enjoy. Mm. Uh, can we talk a little bit about what's in the future? Are you currently working on anything at the moment? I'm at a really interesting um, stage in terms of having... a. Just just finished the last um, Squidge Dibley book for now. Squidge Dibley destroys everything, um, which is a lot of fun to write. And the, the, the characters and the story goes into places I never possibly imagined it would, and it's probably one of my favourite of the Squidge Dibley books. And, and right now I'm actually um, back working as a, as a kids' TV producer full-time, working at the ABC on a really, really wonderful project there. Um, and so I'm just sort of looking at do I, um, where do I go with my, with my books? Is it more books for the same... Readership and age group as Squidge Dibley and the Turners, or is it something a little bit younger? So I've got about 20 different ideas all in my notepads, which I'm just deciding which one or ones I'm going to develop further um, and discuss with my publisher. So um, might need to come back in six months and yeah. ask me and know which one has, <laughs> has moved ahead. And is there any chance that any of your book series will be turned into a TV series? It would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? That would be just wonderful uh, to have that happen. I would love for that to happen. If there's any producers out there uh, listening, mm-hmm. um, it's funny. I've had a number of different discussions with producers, particularly about the Turners. Um, but it, it's just—it's a very, very challenging thing to get a, a TV series or a movie out because a lot of money and um, because of all those fantastical elements that we mentioned earlier. Any sort of adaptation of the Turners or of Squidge Dibley would be very, very expensive to make. Yeah. So if anyone out there has got to spare fifty or hundred million dollars and feel like making a uh, TV series or a movie, please give me a call. <laughs> what is your advice to kids who aren't motivated to write or read? What is the best thing that they could do? The first thing I would say to kids who aren't necessarily keen readers is, firstly, if you've had um, some experiences reading books that you didn't like, find the books that are right for you because chances are if you had to read something you didn't like it, it's because it just wasn't the right book for you. And unfortunately what can often happen is that uh, kids are force-fed to read a book at school and it's either not a subject that they're interested in or it's not a genre that they like or they just, in the same way that if you were forced to watch a movie that just wasn't for you, um, you that would be a bad experience. But what I do say to kids is that um, if you, for example, played a video game and you didn't like it, well, you wouldn't say, I don't like all video games. So you just have to find the book that's 
right for you. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter what the book it is, is. It doesn't matter if it's a graphic novel or if it's a non-fiction book. It doesn't matter if it's an encyclopedia of Minecraft. It doesn't matter what it is. Just read something because in reading, apart from all the benefits that we know, that it does make you smarter, it gives you empathy, it lets you see the world from other points of view, but it actually lets you use a different part of your brain. And if you're if you deny yourself the... the opportunity to read, you're actually not developing a whole part of your brain. Um, and as, as far as writing goes, again, I would say a similar sort of thing is that most of the experience of writing when you're growing up, when you're a kid, is having to do tasks like homework or, or assignments or classwork. And that, that can feel, um, you know, can feel not necessarily that much fun, um, but write for your own wild, like right for writing a story or a character that you love. And my, my son is eight and he, he loves to write stories that are really like really brutal and <laughs> comically hilarious. Um, and I love that. I love that. But if I, if I or my teacher said to him, no, you must write this sort of story, he probably wouldn't enjoy it at all. So write the stories that are right for you. Write about characters that you enjoy. Write about um, ideas that you enjoy, write about subjects that you enjoy. If you like footy, write a story about footy. If you like space, write about space. You know, don't don't think about writing as just being something that you're set to do at school or as homework. Writing is a joy that everyone can have, and writing is storytelling. Think about it as you're sharing a story. And even when you tell your friend a story, or when when you know when you have to explain to your parents why you haven't cleaned up your room, well, that's storytelling. Um, and the better storyteller you are, well, you know, the more rich your life will be and um, you know, the more you'll be able to connect with other people. Ah, that's great. Um, now, unfortunately, this comes to our last question. If you were a turner, what animal would you turn into? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And, and believe it or not, it's a question I've been asked quite a little bit ever since the Turner series has been out there and, um, you know, been telling the story about this boy that can, uh, that can turn into animals. Um, I've had a lot of time to think about it. So I would say that if I was a turner and I could turn into any animal, I would probably like to turn into an owl. Um, and the reason for that is, number one, and probably best of all, you can fly. That's mm. amazing. Um, number two, you can see at night time. That's also incredible. You've got night vision. Mm. Uh, but number three, you can basically turn your head 180 degrees. So you can turn your head around and see what's going on behind you. Um, so I think being an owl would be pretty amazing. I probably wouldn't enjoy you know, eating rats and snakes and things, but all the other aspects of owl life I think I'd really enjoy. Well, it's basically you're an animal with superpowers, three superpowers <laughs> yes. there. That's right, yes. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Hey, thanks so much, Mick, for talking to us. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of your wonderful stories and uh, your process, your creative process, and about your career as well. Um, and for those of you listening, you might want to check out some of Mick Elliott's books or use some of the tips that he's given us today to create your own stories or develop your own characters. See you later. Make sure you don't miss out. Subscribe to Artifarty wherever you get your podcast from.